that the focus tonight is is on this whole idea of transgenderism and gender identity. We're going to kind of go in four sections. Um, we'll first kind of understand, define what transgender, gender dysphoria is. Next, we're going to look at the history and how we arrived at this point. Um, I can't tell you how many people and parents that I've spoken to that said, this really snuck up on me. Um, and this really came to the forefront in the last few years. The reality is it didn't. And uh, it's been two, three, four hundred years in the making, believe it or not. So, um, so we need to understand how we arrived at this place. Third, um, we want to understand uh, that there is a social and cultural shift that has made feelings the ultimate God. Um, and we hear that everywhere we are, uh, everywhere that we go. This is how I feel. Uh, how we feel is the ultimate truth right now. Finally, we're going to wrestle through kind of uh, our response as Bible-believing Christians. You'll maybe notice, I can't, I don't know if I italicize Bible-believing Christians there, but we're going to wrestle through our response as Bible-believing Christians to the current social, cultural, sexual, and political landscape. And I have Bible-believing Christian there uh, intentionally um, because... There are a lot of Christians, we'll talk about this towards the end, or self-professed Christians um, that are completely dismantling uh, the Christian faith with what they say they believe in undermining scriptural authority. Um, and that's a whole separate issue. We don't have a lot of time to get into that. Um, but if, if you have any sort of interest or if you can't sleep tonight, Google um, side A and side B Christianity. Um, it's in regards to the homosexuality in the Christian faith, and it's a huge rabbit hole. Um, both side A and side B Christianity in their own way are kind of undermining historic Christian faith. So close of the seminar, we'll have some questions. Hopefully by the grace of God, I'll have some answers. Um, you notice on the back side of the sheet, I gave you some books to look at. Um, I brought some of them. The, the thicker one on the bottom is a book by Carl Truman. I don't necessarily expect any of you to read that if, if you want to and you're feeling like, I don't know, an intellectual this summer and want to tackle something that's going to make you think and sleep at the same time. It's a good book. You can also Google just review of Carl Truman's um, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and you could find kind of a review on it. I am stealing a lot tonight from a woman, a scholar by the name of Rosaria Butterfield, and from Mr. Truman himself. Rosaria Butterfield is, is a person, just quickly, that you should become familiar with. Rosaria Butterfield came to faith in the 1990s. She was an LBGTQ um, PhD tenured professor at Syracuse University. She befriended her neighbor who was a reformed Presbyterian pastor. And over time she came to faith in Jesus. She's now married, adopted a few kids, amazing story. She writes extensively on homosexuality, gender confusion, all of that good stuff. <sighs> so this is a seminar, not a sermon. So if I put you to sleep, I apologize. Um, but first, as we begin, we need to understand the etymology, the meaning of the word transgender, and also have an understanding culturally of what it means. 
It's a relatively new word, believe it or not, the word transvestite, which uh, I heard as a child far before I ever heard the word transgender. The word transvestite was first coined in 1910 by German, the German phys physician and sexologist Magnus Hirschfeld. I wrote his name down. He's an interesting figure. Uh, he was a homosexual. Hirschfeld also used the term a transvestite to describe a male who dresses a female and vice versa. He was an early advocate for the sexual minority, including those that our contemporary culture would classify as transgender. Uh, he was very much into uh, minority uh, sexual mores. <laughs> I was to say that. Uh, it was kind of open to a lot of exploration, we'll put it that way. Uh, it seems that over time, the word transvestite eventually morphed to transsexual. By the 1960s, the term transgendered, ED, began to emerge. And by 1974, a formal definition was produced. Transgender then, in the 1960s, early 1970s, was an adjective. It wasn't until later that it became a noun, and transgender then was an adjective to refer to a person whose sense of personal identity does not correspond with their anatomical sex. It wasn't until 2015 that the word transgender actually showed itself, transgender without the ED. It's a subtle but important shift, and you can see how culture does this, but transgenderism now is an ontological reality, that is, the person who is a biological male can identify, and this is key right here, and be a female. While it is not completely accepted yet, as Rosaria Butterfield notes, there is a strong push in our culture to agree with the transgendered movement that one's gender defined as their feelings of being male or female conflicts with the biological markers of maleness or femaleness. The feelings are determinative, which we'll talk about more. In other words, how you feel defines who you are. Um, and we'll talk about this in a few minutes. Um, it's a really, really slippery soap, slope, as you can imagine. I mean, you talk about Pandora's box opening. Um, it is becoming wide open. Um, throughout human history, regardless of the culture, society, or age and gender, uh, or age gender meant male and female. There was no fluidity. It is not until the early 1960s that philosophical discussions and arguments began to claim that gender was a social construct. It actually came out of uh, the second wave of feminist feminism. That's where it came from. Uh, which we'll talk about more in a few minutes. The idea of gender as a social construct, actually I have it right here, was used and promoted by the second wave feminist movement. The first wave feminists uh, did a lot of good stuff. 19th century, 20th centuries, they focused on the basic human rights of women, the right to vote, um, the right to work, just simple things that you women thankfully enjoy today. Second wave feminists focus more on sexual, the sexuality of women and culture. Second wave feminists argue that patriarchal society contrived gender roles. That is, we as men created these gender roles. 
to degrade women, thereby rejecting the biblical understanding that God created man and woman from a godly pattern for a creational purpose. Does that make sense? So transgenderism, therefore, believes that the internal self is what identifies us as male and female. Now, this is important. Um, And we need to understand this, because if we don't understand this, um, we won't understand why. Why? (laughs) Uh, I, I mean, I'm sure all of us wake up and we read, we see, and we're like, what, what? What is going on? Um, But transgenderism, to be plausible, must cling to three basic foundations. There are three foundations that people that hold to transgenderism uh, must agree to and believe in. The first is gender must be seen as performative, not biological. In other words, being a man is to perform a role or act as a man in a way that society expects. Biology, you've heard this, is irrelevant. So for some of us that are a little bit more level-headed, it makes absolutely no sense to us. We're like, but you have a penis, you have a vagina. Like, what? That's not how they view it. So if you don't understand that, or if we can't even wrestle with where transgendered or pro-transgendered people are, of course, it's going to continue to go over our heads. Certain behaviors are male and certain behaviors are female, and those behaviors are socially constructed. With that belief, gender, i.e. the role, is unhinged from the sex, biology. Second, transgenderism is plausible because of technology. We can't deny that. The last hundred years or so has brought forth an incredible amount of technological and industrial uh, revolutions. Uh, Historically, men and women were distinguished by their biological differences. Uh, Men uh, typically were stronger than women. There are things now that can change that, right? The development of industry, computer technology has neutralized the physical and biological difference that were once evident. Not only that, but advances in medicine, uh, hormones, surgeries, has provided humanity with the opportunity to just change genders. It's no longer just cross-dressing. If I want to mutilate my body, I will do that. Finally, transgenderism is valid in our contemporary culture because we, because who we are is what we feel and think. You've noticed I probably brought that up three or four times. Um, And we're going to talk a little bit just how that, uh, uh, how I feel is God in our contemporary culture, how it's even infecting and affecting Christianity. But transgenderism is valid in our contemporary culture because who we are is what we feel and think, meaning our gender is psychological, not physical or biological, you are the person you think and feel you are. So if we have time, um, we'll discuss this a little bit more. But as I said a few minutes ago, if feelings are the barometer to what is appropriate and right for the individual, a cultural Pandora's box is wide open. 
meaning everything sexually and possibly otherwise, must be acceptable. Now here is a somewhat recent, albeit late 1970s, uh, example of where this is going. So this is 1970s, this is 1977. There's been a growing movement around the world to make pedophilia, believe it or not, normative. Um, in the late 1970s, as I said, uh, Michel Foucault, who's a famous philosopher, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, and Jacques Derrida. You might remember those names from college if you were paying attention at all. <laughs> and others signed a petition to the French parliament calling for the decriminalization of all consensual sexual relations between adults and minors. Ah, 1970s, y'all. This, this isn't a last few years thing. Many of the sexual elites, even in our culture, believe that children are able to give sexual consent and we are moving, yes, we are in that direction. Uh, California, there's been some bills proposed even to lower the age of consent there to 14 or 15. That's scary. Okay, any questions up to this point? I know I'm talking super fast, but there's a lot. If you have... Yes, we're 15 minutes and one second in. So, all right, well, let's, let's talk for a few minutes about the history. So uh, we've kind of just talked briefly already about just the current biological and sexual confusion with people. Uh, and many people, as I said a few minutes ago, have a simplistic uh, idea of how we arrived at this place. Uh, many Americans, and I've heard this over the years from plenty of people, they make the mistake of blaming just the sexual revolution. Uh, they blame the hippies. They blame uh, Norma McCorvey. Do you know who that is? You know the name? It's Jane Doe. That was her real name, Norma McCorvey. Uh, they blame Obama. You remember when uh, gay marriage was legalized and he lit up? The White House, so they blame him. Uh, they blame the Supreme Court's decision to legalize gay marriage. Uh, I've even heard people blame, well, all this transgenderism stuff is because of news networks like CNN. It's just so uh, basic <laughs> and uh, inaccurate. Um, there's cause and effect to everything. Uh, blaming any one of those or even all of those things together would be simplistic and frankly historically and socially inaccurate. Movements, I think I have it on your sheet there, uh, movements historically, socially, and otherwise always produce other movements. Uh, nothing is done historically in a vacuum. Um, much came before the sexual revolution um, even hundreds of years that continues to influence your kids and my kids to this day. Um, the overt sexuality of our day, including but not limited to the acceptance of homosexuality and transgenderism, is just a contemporary outworking of hundreds of years of cultural cause and effect. Now, with that said, we can, we can, we can go way back, right, <laughs> to the beginning of humankind and talk about Genesis 2, right? My hope is that all of us as Bible-believing Christians understand we are where we are because of sin, right? Like, that, 
foundational, right? So, so uh, we're going to take that just as it is. So what I want to do now is, um, rather than boring you, I was a history major, so I love this stuff, but rather than boring you with the fall to the present, which we would be here all night anyway, um, we'll, we'll fall, sin came into the world, a whole lot of bad stuff happened, right? Sodom and Gomorrah, all kinds of fun stuff. Yay, yay. Now we're in the 1700s, right? So see how fast we skipped ahead. Yay. Jean-Jacques Rousseau. You remember that name? We'll talk about him here in a few minutes. But um, well, well, we'll just skip that. So we'll talk. I just skipped a page, but that's fine. Um, we need to. In, 19, or in 1762, rather, Jean-Jacques Rousseau wrote... Man was born free, but everywhere he is in chains. Man was born free, but everywhere he is in chains. That simple statement uh, made the Swiss philosopher Rousseau world famous. That's kind of what put him on the map. Now, what's interesting is um, all of us probably, in, in if we had history in college or high school, or a philosophy class. We were probably bored out of our minds, um, unless you're a weirdo like me. But um, the philosophers then were uh, the popular culture, popular culture and media icons of our day. So, you know, look at somebody like, uh, well, I think somebody kind of current, uh, Dua Lipa, who's a, a huge recording artist right now. I actually like her, sorry. It's one of those, uh, what do you call that, a guilty pleasure? Um, <laughs> what's that? Yeah, good. My, my daughters make fun of me. They're like, Dad, really? Do a lipa? Um, so the philosophers then carried a tremendous amount of weight. Um, and it actually, I think we were talking about this last night in our group for a few minutes, but um, the philosophers then, the thinkers then, uh, the information trickled down. So it went from then to the social elites and then from the social elites into the everyday homes. And it would take years and years and years. The only difference now is um, the advent of the internet and television and everything is just instant. I'd snap my fingers, but I don't know how. But man was born free, but everywhere he is in chains. Uh, one of my uh, dead mentors, uh, Francis Schaeffer, uh, noted of Rousseau's idea of individual freedom. That's what he was talking about. Rousseau was, was really the first philosopher that, that said, I am, who I, I am who I want to be and who I am. And no one, not God, not the culture, not society, not government, no one has any right to infringe on that. So Francis Schaeffer said, we must understand that the freedom Rousseau advocated for was not just a freedom from God or the Bible, but freedom from any kind of restraint, freedom from culture, freedom from authority, and absolute freedom of the individual, a freedom in which the individual is the center of the universe. Now, this is 1700s. Look where we are today. So Rousseau wrote that then, and it is commonplace now. Rousseau heavily impacted the American founding fathers, and his ideals continue to reverberate 
to today. I had a whole section on um, how um, Rousseau impacted our government, our way of life in the United States, and how we're not a Christian nation partly because of Rousseau and never were a Christian nation partly because of Rousseau, but I cut all that because I didn't want to offend any of you. So that think we were a Christian nation because we never were. Sorry. So with Rousseau and others during the Enlightenment, that was the period that Rousseau lived in, the 17th and 18th centuries, identity, uh, who people were, turned inward. Rousseau contended that individuals have dignity and value because of their inward self-consciousness. I have identity because, well, I think and I feel. And so, therefore, that's who I am. Anything outside of an individual's feelings, society, culture, the Bible, even God does not give the person value. Value is found in here. 1700s. Rousseau brought the world, uh, rocked the world by storm 300 years ago, and we're still experiencing uh, the effects of him today. Now, here's a guy who... um, so we go from Rousseau to a guy by the name of uh, Marquis de Sade. He lived from 1740 to 1814. His name should look on your page and sound somewhat familiar. Uh, the words sadism and sadist derive from him, his writings and his lifestyle. The guy was a freak. Um, he was a proponent of absolute moral freedom, and that included libertine sexuality Uh, Libertine sexuality, to give you kind of a new word, um, is essentially uh, a person devoid of any sort of sexual morals or restraint. Um, Desaad was an outcast in his day, and uh, he was also celebrated, um, which was unique. He was often in prison, and I'll spare you the details on why you can, if you're a sickle like me, you can Google it later, but Uh, I will give you kind of one example. He was imprisoned on one occasion while married, um, and his wife accepted a lot of, well, accepted all of his behavior. Um, On one occasion, he was imprisoned for beating a prostitute during sex. Um, And I share that because it reveals how Desaad viewed not only sex, but other people. Um, He viewed sex as being for him and not for the benefit or blessing or gift of another person. Uh, Carl Truman wrote in his article, we're all sadists now. Desaad's specific sexual predilections assume the notion of sex simply as one more consumer commodity in the marketplace. And upon the idea of other people as merely instrumental to the achievement of personal sexual pleasure. Desaad turned the sexual relation to relationship into an economic relationship of exchange aimed at the satisfaction of the individual consumer. In other words, for Desaad, sex was like buying a cup of coffee. If I want it, I just go and get it. Again, hello Tinder, right? That's where we are. And that's where we are. There's a guy named um, Rod Dreyer, D-R-E-H-E-R, who wrote an article in 2015. He was a professor at a Christian college, 
and he wrote an article about how all of his students were using Tinder. Christian college to just hook up. You know, I need my fix. What's your name? Don't care. So that's where we are. Desaad was a prophet and to many a revolutionary. Just a kind of a quick side note about Desaad. Again, ideas have consequences. And what is said today will impact us 300 years from now. And what was said 300 years ago is still impacting us. But in 1795, Desaad wrote in his book, Philosophy of the Bedroom. I had the French title down, but I don't know French. I wasn't going to pretend. In his book, Philosophy of the Bedroom, um, Desaad advocated that induced abortion should be normalized as a means of population control and for social and sexual reasons. So amongst abortion advocates, Desaad is regarded as one of the figures that ushered in the acceptance of induced abortion. Amazing, isn't it? 1795. Uh, You may have heard it said, as I just said a second ago, ideas have consequences, and it's true. Uh, We did not arrive at this place socially and culturally within the last few years. Um, You know, as I jokingly said, the reality is many of us slept through our history classes, (laughs) paid no attention to philosophy, and even over the last, let's say, 20 years... Uh, or even 10 years for some of us that are a little bit younger than me, we've just totally disregarded societal trends. I mean, it's all been out there. So to say, as I've heard some say, and Allison and I have even talked about this, as some parents have approached us, um, to say, what happened in the last few years? Like, we really have been sleeping as Christians. That's the reality. And uh, we're uh, playing behind now. Is that a golf phrase, playing behind? No. Well, what sport? I don't, it doesn't matter. Whatever. Playing catch-up, yeah. You're, you guys golf, right? I don't. I'm terrible. <laughs> yeah, any sport, I guess, yeah. The Sixers, what time is it? 7.43. They're probably already losing by now. Um, in the early 20th century, uh, here's a name you definitely know. In the early 20th century, the Austrian neurologist and psychoanalyst Sigmund Freud, yay, ushered in a critical shift in human sexuality. Now, Freud um, has been totally, uh, anybody psychology majors in college? No? He's been, in regards to psychology, pretty much debunked. I mean, all of a lot of his psychological beliefs, ideas, they're uh, pretty much nonsense now for, for anybody that's really studied psychology in depth. But um, his views on sexuality continue to kind of reverberate. Uh, listen, listen to this quote here. Freud is the man who makes human beings essentially sexual. So again, up until, uh, what is this, uh, 1905, 1910 or so with Freud, um, up until this point, um, there have been a few kind of outliers, a few people saying this, that, and other thing. Freud is the one that really kind of normalized all of this. Freud is the man who makes human beings essentially sexual. And in doing that, he not only paves the way for the kind of world we live in today where sex is identity. Before Freud, sex is not identity. It's an activity. Sometimes it's legitimate. Sometimes it's illegitimate. 
but it's not an identity in the way it becomes until after Freud. The whole underpinnings of the LBGTQ plus movement really depend upon the Freudian premise that sexualization is what it means to be a human being. He paves the way for the politicization of sex because once you make sex identity, you make the regulating of sex a regulating of who people are allowed to be. You're effectively legislating identities at that point. It's part and parcel of modern political institutions that somebody's sexual identity is a part of who they are. The government is, is required not simply to tolerate that, but also to affirm it. Does it make sense? In other words, Freud was the first one that says, you're a sexual being and that's really all you are. Um, and I mean, we kind of see that today, don't we? Everything revolves around sex. Um, we could talk about we'll, we'll we'll talk about that more in a few minutes. But so Freud really ushered that in uh, the sexual revolution that took place in the West, not just in the United States, but in the West in the 1960s, radically transformed the sexual attitudes and behaviors in the mainstream. Behaviors such as homosexuality, pornography, sex outside of marriage became normal. In other words, a sexual revolution dismantled all sexual ethics and began to not only accept what was previously believed to be morally wrong, but to celebrate those actions and beliefs. Uh, culturally and socially, what is wrong is the person who has a sexual ethic and morality. That's considered wrong today. Are you following me? So think of, just for a moment, you remember Steve Carell's movie, The 40-Year-Old Virgin? Mm -hmm. You laugh at that. 40-Year-Old Virgin, yeah. That's wrong. And that's one example of now how it's believed that unless you're sexually active, um, you're not really a human being. Uh, what makes you a human being is that you're sexually active. Uh, so over the last 100 years, sexuality moved from a verb, uh, a practice, to a noun, to people. And with that came a significant change. We, humanity, are oriented by our sexual desires. In other words, what makes you you, what makes you you, is your sexual desires and orientation. So what I've kind of attempted to show, 300 years and 10 minutes, <laughs> is that the shift took years in the making and was brought forth by philosophers and thinkers. With that said, prior to the advent of television, internet, philosophical ideas, as I said earlier, spread from the political and the social elite down to the common people, the philosophers of our day, are readily available, and they're in the form of entertainment. Yay. Um, we're going to talk about this more uh, at the end, but if you don't know, um, and I'll be blunt here, and if, if you're offended by it, you can chastise me later, um, but I'll still stand by what I'm saying. If you as a parent don't know what your kids are watching and listening to, shame on you.
shame on you. So it's, yeah, their phones uh, are loaded guns. Uh, and uh, we're, we're crazy if we're just like here with no parameters. All right. Feelings. The God of our age. Are you awake? Do you need to stretch? Any questions up to this point? Quick history lesson. We good? All right. Um, so now that we just kind of have a quick sample, historical sample of how we've arrived at being an autonomous, individualistic, and sexualized culture, what is the result? In other words, now that God, morals, norms, and so on are stripped away, what are we left with? Our feelings. What you feel, what I feel. So let's use, let's use just transgenderism as an example. People who think they are a woman trapped in a man's body are really making their inner psychological convictions absolutely decisive for who they are. And to the extent that prior to coming out, they have publicly denied this inner reality. To the extent they have had an inauthentic existence. This is why the language of living a lie often appears in the testimony of transgender people. Does that make sense? You mean to read that again? I know it was a mouthful. People who think they are a woman trapped in a man's body are really making their inner psychological convictions absolutely decisive for who they are. And to the extent that prior to coming out, they have publicly denied this inner reality, to that extent, they have been inauthentic. This is why the language living a lie often appears in the testimony of transgender people. In other words, the individual feeling and being true to oneself, I'm sure you heard that, is what is most important and valuable. So I need to be true to myself regardless of what my biological makeup is. So that's how we shifted in regards to transgenderism. But maybe let's think about it another way of just how uh, how the idea of feelings uh, as God has come about. Um, and maybe this one will resonate a little bit more. Um, I think I brought this up last night. Uh, how would you define happiness or fulfillment? in your life. Just kind of think about that for a moment. You don't need to answer it, but I think for a lot of us, if not all of us, happiness and fulfillment is kind of found in our career or whatever it may be, doing a job or being a parent, whatever it is, and feeling enjoyment in that. I think if you were to ask your grandfather or maybe even your dad, depending on your age, did you find satisfaction and fulfillment in your job? I actually asked my dad this recently. And he looked at me 
and I think your grandfather or your dad would too, depending on their age, he looked at me with a blank stare. Like, what? Your grandfather found fulfillment in defeating the Nazis, providing for his family. What do you mean find fulfillment in what I do? Now, that's not to say that your grandfather or my grandfather or my dad are devoid of feelings. It's not saying that at all. Rather, it's saying feelings were not their God. Everything in life didn't revolve around their stupid feelings because feelings ebb and flow. We've, we've lost that for whatever reason. Well, we've discussed some of the reasons, but we've lost that in our contemporary culture. My grandfather and even my dad's satisfaction was focused more externally than internally. My kids are happy. <laughs> my wife has a car. I've been able to take my family out to Long John Silver on a Friday night. That was like a big night for us. So while the culture, though, in society has shifted sexually in the West, we've become more kind of progressive. And with that has come the belief that individual feelings are supreme. And what I'm trying to, to communicate is that is a very recent construct, right? So the whole idea of transgenderism and how did this get here in the last few years? That's been building for several hundreds of years. The idea of feelings being God is a pretty new construct. Uh, and it goes against biblical Christianity. And uh, I'll speak more to that in a moment because this idea is feelings as God is plaguing Christianity right now. Uh, and I'll, I'll call it out. Um, there's, there's pastors that are not helping the cause. Uh, Stephen Furtick. Uh, some of you might like him. Stop listening to him. Um, he is has said many heretical things. Um, Bill Johnson at Bethel, uh, T.D. Jakes. Uh, anytime a preacher puts themselves or puts you at the center of the story and not Jesus, turn them off. That's for another day, I guess, but... While pastoring in Connecticut, I had a young woman approach me and, and she said, Pastor, can you tell me if your church, this is one of the ways it's kind of infiltrated the church a little bit. Can you tell me if your church is open and affirming? Have any of you heard that language before? If you're unfamiliar with the language, an open and affirming church is one that believes in the full. Please hear what I'm saying here the full inclusion of gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, and non-binary persons in the church's life and ministry. An open and affirming church does not view homosexuality, transgenderism, or really any sexual sin as sin. The young woman's question was one up there that I received often. Um, we were a younger church, and younger I mean age. We were kind of hip. Um, and we were the only kind of growing, thriving church within about a 20-mile radius. So we attracted all sorts of people because some of them just wanted to see what's going on there. 
And my response was the same as I had given many times. And believe it or not, we had two, at one point, three lesbian couples in our church. <laughs> like, you know where we are, right? You know what we believe? Okay. Um, but my response was the same to them and even to her. We are an open church. We want everyone to know and grow in Jesus, but we are not an affirming church. We do not affirm what displeases God. Her response, who are you to tell me how I feel? And I could still see the wrath in her eyes. <laughs> and then she stormed off. Now notice, my response to her had nothing to do with her feelings. Zero. It was based on biblical truth. We're not approving or accepting any sin that displeases God. But in our progressive cultural culture, rather, personal experiences, feelings, even opinions are valued above objective truth. My feelings matter more than anything else in this world. That's uh, known uh, as expressive individualism. Uh, it's a helpful kind of term to know, and it holds that each person has a unique core feeling, and it unfolds and expresses who they are individually. And unless you can unlock that, uh, you won't understand your true identity. It seems very confusing to me, personally, like... Carl Truman wrote this about expressive individualism. Let's see what time it is. It is correct in seeing our inner space, our thoughts, our emotions, as an important part of who we are. Uh, and we'll talk about this just in a moment, but uh, there are a few positives that are coming out of this if, if we're able to kind of look at it in the right light, Right? It is correct in seeing our inner space, our thoughts, our emotions as an important part of who we are. That is one thing, even in Christianity, that we're seeing more of. And I would say um, that idea of expressing yourself is a good thing. Uh, I didn't grow up in the church, but I've heard from a lot of people that did that have church hurt that they were taught just to stuff their feelings down, just you're upset, you're struggling with homosexuality, just shove it down. You're struggling with pornography or masturbation, just hide it. Pretend it's not there. We're actually getting to a place in Christianity, even evangelical Christianity, where it's like, no, let's, let's talk. We're a community, and we need to rally around each other. This community is our largest, aside from Jesus, is our largest and greatest commodity as a church. And we suck at it, if I can be blunt. All right, well, uh, I lost myself. Carl Truman. Other people, formal institutions, and cultural traditions all tend to be seen in an adversarial light as threatening the individual ability for self-realization. So this idea of expressive individualism in our current day, you can see how it traces back 300 years to Rousseau, right? Rousseau said that. 
How dare you tell me what I can and can't do? I am the leader of my life. And expressive individualism, and even what we're seeing in the transgender movement, is showing that. In trans ideology, even the body, therefore, becomes a problem to be overcome if it contradicts our inner feelings. It's a little scary, isn't it? So if I feel maybe that, even if it's a passing moment, but the culture is telling me that I need to sit on that, even if I feel for a moment, uh, maybe it would be cool to be a man and I'm a female. Maybe it would be cool. Well, my body, the fact that I have breasts, the fact that I have a vagina is a problem. And I need to figure out how to overcome the problem, my body. It's quite sad. And uh, this is where, as Christians, and we'll talk about this in a few moments, where we need to have more compassion and empathy. Um, I'll talk about that in a few more minutes. But um, So as I said, expressive individualism, feelings over everything, has invaded even Christianity. And here's a statement maybe that you've used. Um, I go to Central because the worship speaks to me. I go to Central because the sermons speak to me. Uh, it's simple and it's subtle. But in a very real sense, it shows how um, you're at the center of it. With sexuality specifically over the years, even in the last few days, believe it or not, I've heard statements from self-professed Christians such as, I thought homosexuality was a sin until I met my friend. Or, the Bible doesn't say anything about trans people, so it must be okay. I've had Christian people, young and old, say to me, I think God just wants me to be happy. There's no mortification of sin. There's no growing in Christ. There's no Luke 9.23. Therefore, if anybody would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, right? God just wants me to be happy. A simple statement such as, don't trust your feelings in 2022 is controversial. On Tuesday night, just being honest with you, on Tuesday night, Chris made that statement when he was teaching the senior, senior high students about sexuality and transgender movement. And several students balked at him and even told him he was wrong. These are Christian kids. Grew up in the church. Did God create us with feelings and emotions? Absolutely. We laugh, we cry, we feel, we get uh, we experience compassion. Like Those are all God-given things that he wants us to experience, but they should not be Lord of our lives. Uh, I've told my kids, and if you haven't shared some of this stuff with your kids, um, those of you where your kids are still a little bit younger, if you haven't shared with them some of your experiences, your past mistakes, and how, man, if God let me follow every feeling I had, I, don't even, I wouldn't even be alive. I wouldn't be with your mother. 
It'd be some some freak in New Orleans. I don't even know where I'd be, you know? Who knows? But I wouldn't be where I am today. And just a few examples, right, of how God, he's given us feelings, he's given us emotions, he's given us all these things, but not as our Lord. Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. Proverbs 28, 26, the one who trusts in himself is a fool, a fool. But one who walks in wisdom will be safe. And the walking in wisdom, obviously, in the book of Proverbs is following the Lord. That's what wisdom is. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, examine the mind. I test the heart to give way to each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. So our hearts and feelings are not trustworthy simply, right? We know this because they're corrupted by sin. Uh, Your feelings and my feelings are about as certain as sand on a beach. (laughs) I heard this years ago. The sand is always being moved. It's being pushed forward and backward by the wind, the waves, kids making castles or doing whatever they're doing. And our feelings are no different than the sand. They're easily changed and altered by different circumstances, both within us and outside of us. Any questions? We're moving to the response section. Y'all are either really paying attention or not at all. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Um, all right, so response. Um, and so we'll sit here for a few minutes and then we'll, we'll, we'll have you know, some questions. Hopefully you all will have some questions and I'll have some answers for you, I hope. Or maybe others will. Uh, as I stated when we began, we need to discuss how as Bible-believing Christians, uh, we will respond to our current social, political, and sexual climate. Uh, and I, as I said, I use the word or phrase Bible-believing Christians intentionally. Francis Schaeffer, in his book, The Great Evangelical Disaster, he wrote this in the late 70s, noted that to be really Bible-believing Christians, we need to practice simultaneously at each step of the way two biblical principles, the purity of the visible church and an observable love among all true Christians. So with that said, I do, I do want to say, um, don't take for granted just someone calling themselves a Christian. Uh, 20, 30 years ago, I didn't have to say that. You know, somebody said they were a Christian. Yeah, they're Christian. Um, it's not the case anymore. Do they believe the Bible? Do they follow Jesus' words and all of his words? Do they understand the simple doctrine of sin and repentance? Uh, Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're not about a non-believer, but someone who claims to follow him, but is a deceiver. Matthew seven fifteen through 20, be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, inwardly are ravaging wolves. 
you'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down, thrown to a fire, so you'll recognize them by their fruit. So with that said, part of recognizing someone by their fruit is, do they affirm the sins that God condemns in Scripture? That's part of it. Historically, Christians have viewed the Bible as the Word of God, as authoritative for our lives. Progressive Christianity generally abandons those terms, emphasizing personal belief over biblical mandate. So there are many attempts by progressive Christians and progressive churches, you may see them with the flags out front, that are systematically attempting to dismantle the historic doctrines and theology of Christianity. Um, when we were in Connecticut, uh, we were probably, the evangelical churches and the pastors that I knew within a probably 60 mile radius, we were probably outnumbered 10 to 1, progressive churches and Christians to evangelical churches. Um, they were all open and affirming, and they were living off of million dollar endowments from people that came here 400 years ago. <laughs> it's pretty sad. All right, so how do we respond? I needed to say that because I was talking to Irene earlier today because she was asking me a few questions. If you were to type in Google um, and you just put in Christianity and transgenderism, um, you're going to find some blogs, some posts, some podcasts that are going to be from progressive Christians. Um, you type in Christianity and homosexuality, you're going to find a guy by the name of Matthew Vines who wrote what he thought was a scholarly book about homosexuality in the church and Christianity. Uh, it was terrible. Uh, homosexual Christians loved it. And those that are proponents of uh, that loved it. Um, but in terms of an academic resource, his scholarship was shoddy at best. Um, so, so, you know, just be careful what, what you Google, what your kids Google, if they're wondering or searching, uh, if they're questioning, help them and guide them through it, but, but point them in the right direction. You know, uh, so we just we just need to be careful with that. So, um, okay. So how do we respond? First, we must separate political ambitions and pastoral care. Um, Carl Truman notes this is an important this is important because a failure to do so will lead to one of two unfortunate results. Either one will fail to show compassion to the individual wrestling with gender confusion, or we will show too much compassion to a movement determined to dismantle any distinction between male and female in the public sphere. So with Christians on kind of both sides of this issue, uh, it's evident really when it comes to transgenderism, gender dysphoria, as Christians, we are failing miserably. Uh, I know of 
Christian parents that have thrown their kids out of the house for just questioning evangelical churches or unwelcoming to the transgender or the homosexual wondering about faith in Jesus. Uh, and I'll speak to that in a moment, but both communities. So this is what, what we need to understand as Christians and as Christian leaders. Both of those communities, uh, the transgender community and the homosexual community, whether gay or lesbian, are often far more welcoming and loving than the church. And that is why it is so easy for them to be grafted in and accepted and approved of. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield, in, in her two books, shares, again, she's the woman who is a tenured professor at Syracuse in gay lesbian studies, um, who came to faith in Jesus, shares about her lesbian community, about how welcoming it was, how her and her partner, she had a live-in partner before she came to faith, their house was open every night to people struggling in their neighborhood. Gay, lesbian, homeless, whatever it was, open every night to people going through different issues. Uh, and we see that in the transgender movement. You don't, you don't fit in in your church? We'll welcome you. We'll love you. You have blue hair. You dress a little different. That's okay with us. It's fine. We're not going to judge you. It shouldn't be so. I mean, mm. uh, so, so we, we, we've got to wrestle through that a little bit. On the other side, blatant acceptance as Christians, blatant acceptance of transgenderism, gender dysphoria, obviously devalues the gospel and denies God's design. Uh, Psalm 138, right? Um, Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, the gospel changes lives, and to think otherwise is not biblical Christianity. Uh, God did design two genders, male and female. With that said, God did not make a mistake in creating any one of us, any of our kids, grandkids, whoever it may be. Um, we need to respond with both biblical conviction and personal compassion. Can't forget to love the person for who they are and what they're struggling with. Um, for whatever reason, sometimes as Christians, we, we, we're like disconnected from our own reality. It's like we forget that person is struggling with a sin. It's not my sin, it's transgender. I don't struggle with transgenderism, but, but look at how weird they are. Look at how weird they look. How are they struggling with that? Meanwhile, we have our own demons and sins. So we need to respond with both, both biblical conviction and personal compassion. Second, we must acknowledge, as I said a few minutes ago, there is an element of truth in the transgender discussion. Don't throw anything at me. You could throw it at Carl Truman. He wrote this, It is important to acknowledge that gender theory, like many other fundamentally incorrect philosophies, contains an element of truth. The way in which the roles of men and women are understood do vary from time to time and place to place. So it's important that in defending the distinction between men and women, the importance of biology to that distinction, we should not end up defending our own cultural expectations of what men and women should do and how they should perform their roles as if our cultural performance is identical to biblical teaching. You following that? So just because our culture says this is what a woman is, 
doesn't mean that our cultural makeup and performing of a woman is actually what the Bible says. And, and we've really screwed that up um, pretty bad. I sadly have done it with my oldest daughter. <laughs> you know, she does, yeah, like way more pull-ups and everything that I can do and wears hoodies all the time and I'm like, can you just look like a woman? And then I have to like close my mouth and I can't believe I said that. Dang it, you're such a stupid dad. Um, so it's, we, we shouldn't identify godliness with our own way of doing things. Uh, it makes us very vulnerable to critique by the transgender lobby who can then easily claim that we're simply indulging in cultural chauvinism. So in other words, as we approach this issue, if we keep banging on the drum, this is what a woman looks like and how a woman should act, of course that movement is going to look at us and go, chauvinists, this is what we're fighting against. I mean, there are parts of the world, I've never been to them, right, where the women are the ones that go out and hunt, carry water pitchers, or do whatever they do. Uh, it's not so here, but that's what we've created anyhow. Next, it's important to understand, as I've already stated, that community plays a significant role in the current gender movement. The rising number of teenagers struggling with gender dysphoria over the last few years is not because all of the sudden transgenderism is accepted. It points to the reality that transgenderism currently enjoys cultural cachet as a place of belonging. Now, a statement like that, obviously, I wouldn't say to someone um, who is in a transgender circle. Um, but it is helpful for us to understand as you look at movements um, and social movements over the course of history, there are always um, social cachets that we fall into. Um, and that we follow. Uh, you did when you were in junior high and high school. Maybe you got into skateboarding. Maybe you wore uh, uh, swatch watches up your arms. I did that sixth and seventh grade. You know, there are, <laughs> there are cultural things that we fall into because that's what is kind of happening. Um, and transgenderism at this current time is one of those things. And finally, we need to acquaint ourselves with the wider cultural and social context of transgenderism and sexuality. As I said earlier, we need to understand what our kids are listening to, what they're watching, and even what they're struggling to understand. Um, just a quick example. Um, when my youngest daughter was in second grade, we were living in Connecticut, Connecticut's super progressive, yes, more than New Jersey. And um, in second grade, so this, she's in eighth grade now, so this would have been six, seven years ago. Um, she was dealing with what your, a lot of your kids are dealing with today. And she came home one evening, we're having a conversation at dinner, and she brings up um, Mr. Kane, uh, her homosexual teacher who's married. Why won't he ever have kids? Um, why does he have this? rainbow flag in his room? Does he love Jesus and Noah? Like, 
you know, it's her connection, right? Put my fork down. She's in second grade. Put my fork down. I'm like, I looked at Jenny. I was like, I guess it's time. <laughs> so we had a two-hour discussion that night about transgenderism, homosexuality, uh, marriage. Uh, it was shortly after everything was passed. Uh, yeah, that would have been about 2015 is when it passed. So yeah, it would have been in that neighborhood. If you haven't had those discussions with your kids, you need to. Um, because somebody is having those discussions with your kids. Um, and it should be you and not your teachers. Um, we talk to some parents sometimes that uh, think it's all on us. We're all on the teachers, you know, and we're like, you're the primary discipler. You're, you're with them far more than, you know, we are or the churches. And we're all of a sudden supposed to wave a magic wand and fix your kid. It doesn't work that way. Um, we need to be having conversations regularly with our kids about what they're experiencing day to day. Is it scary? Did I want to have that conversation with my second grader? No, not at all. My, this is funny, just funny story. Just break tension here real quick. When I was in fifth grade, this is my dad's sex talk. It was awesome. <laughs> he, uh, I was skateboarding, doing my thing, fifth grade, right? He picks me up takes me out to a, a, a Italian sub shop. We get sandwiches, takes me down by the Delaware River. I grew up 45 minutes from here and uh, takes me down by the river and says, uh, if you ever get a girl knocked up, I'll burn your tongue on the effing stove. <laughs> that was the sex talk. <laughs> My dad's awesome. He's I mean, he sounds like, <laughs> but, uh, He's awesome. And then he changed the subject. Then we started talking about the Yankees or something. It was like, okay, here we are. This is cool. So, like, you know, sometimes parents say, well, you know, I don't know what to say. My parents didn't tell me. Like, I'm sure your sex talk was better than mine, right? So um, but we just sometimes have to just figure it out. We got to just do it, you know, uh, and, and bring it up and allow them to ask questions, um, feel the discomfort, be okay with it. Um, yeah, we just leave the door open. So, um, so there's there's an emphasis uh, right now. I hear a lot about Hopewell, right, especially, but there's such an emphasis on what schools are teaching and communicating, and understandably so. Um, but but have you discipled and led your child in a way that they're able to refute the current cultural climate? Um, do they understand? that their identity was formed by a perfect God who loves them. Uh, are you able, as even as you just think about this, this, this is maybe a seminar for another time, but are you able to parent your child, to discipline your child with both grace and law? And in doing that, communicate them the gospel and show them that uh, God has forgiven me therefore i'm going to forgive you for whatever your whatever their transaction was uh, but do they understand that their identity was formed by a perfect god who loves them that their identity does not rest entirely in their sexuality 
my oldest daughter had a boyfriend for like a week. I'm so glad that the jerk is gone. But, um, and my youngest daughter, you know, she had one crush up to this point and she won't still won't admit it. He was in Latin class with her this summer. Um, but we've had conversations even with our daughters who've not even had boyfriend or boyfriends yet. Your identity is not in your sexuality. Like, and, and they're like, you a mom of sex. They're like, oh gosh, you know, here we go. Right. But you, you've got to be able to communicate that to your, to your son or daughter. Like the, the, the whole idea of sex is it's everywhere, but it, it's a small part of your life, you know? So have those conversations now with your kids, regardless how old they are. Um, all right. I want to give us just some time for questions, but you can see at the bottom of the, the outline there, um, Paul David Tripp's book, uh, sex in a broken world. It's a good book. At the end of the book, he gives kind of eight, um, kind of talking points, whatever you want to call them, suggestions. Um, these would be things I, I just kind of took those and said, these would be kind of things to, to maybe talk through your kids about, um, uh, especially for those of you that, well, I was going to say that just have sons, but um, pornography and um, and all that fun stuff is on the rise with, with girls, believe it or not. It's, it's blowing up with young girls. The statistics are crazy, but um, you need to be having those conversations even with your sons and daughters about pornography, masturbation, and all that fun stuff. I know it's icky, weird, but... Um, it's 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 reality. It's stuff we struggled with. So of course they're struggling with it. So let me just close with this: Christians in the church need to be more open about sexuality. Uh, God created us male and female as very good, and He also, you know, this created human sexuality as good. Um, yet we've allowed the world to hijack what God has graciously provided His people. Sex is an open book everywhere except in the church. Uh, God gave us a whole book of the Bible, the Song of Solomon, on a sexual relationship. And even that's taboo. Have any of you ever gone through a sermon series or a Bible study on the Song of Solomon? One. Yeah, so uh, back in the day, um, I had to write a whole thing to my parents. This is when I was a youth pastor. I did a 10-week study on it with our students and uh, that was fun okay um any questions